This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There are about 170 active volcanoes in the United States. Many are among the so-called Ring of Fire in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska. Hawaii is also a major hotspot. Indigenous people have cultural connections to both active and dormant volcanoes all over the world. As volcanic eruptions attract attention across the globe, we'll take time to get indigenous perspectives on the power and significance of these major forces of nature. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Higher education advocates for Native students say President Joe Biden's loan forgiveness program will help Native students, but does not address longstanding financial obstacles. As Aaron Bolton reports, Biden recently announced that people under certain incomes will have up to $20,000 of their student loans forgiven. Dave Sanders is the vice president of research at the American Indian College Fund, which provides scholarships for Native students. He says loan forgiveness will help many students go back to school if they never finished and make it plausible for many to accomplish other life goals, like buying a house. But it doesn't resolve the disproportionate barriers Native students face. So you're still going to have issues of access as well as issues of affordability going through the system. A recent report compiled by Native scholarship funds found that Indigenous students drop out of college at nearly double the rate as their peers, in part because they can't afford tuition and other basic needs like housing and food. Among many possible solutions listed in that report, Sanders says schools could help Indigenous students pay for things like books or waive various fees for housing and health care. He adds the federal government could find ways to offer more grants to help students cover those basic costs. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. Navajo Nation officials are offering condolences to the family of Kiara Gordon, who was killed in an accident over the weekend. The 17-year-old was among students on a field trip. On their return home, their bus was rear-ended by a semi-truck on Interstate 40 in Arizona. Six other students were reportedly injured in the crash. Funeral services for Gordon are pending. The tribe is offering counseling services this week for students, teachers, and staff. Alaska experiences some of the highest rates of suicide in the nation. KMBA's Hannah Bissett reports on a prevention program focused on young people. Bill Peregrine is Clinkett and Filipino who works as the president of a nonprofit in Palmer, Alaska called Carry the Cure. Peregrine says that the idea of Carry the Cure was created after he played with a symphony in a village school in northern Alaska. He created the nonprofit to tie spiritual, cultural, and clinical practices of healing to help save youth. Our main program is a suicide prevention program, a public uh, school assembly and public presentation called Committed to Life. So we give people reasons to live. That's the whole deal, giving people hope, giving them practical tools, clinical tools, cultural tools, spiritual tools, reasons to commit to life. The Committed to Life program is structured to be fun and full of games. According to Peregrine, it's like a Native-style Tonight Show. In the presentations, there are Indigenous dancers from many cultures, including Yupik and Cree. And so we use that as a way of like saying, 
this is who we are and 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 it's important to embrace that as part of our message of committing to life. After the dancing, he starts a presentation on addressing identity. During the presentation, many illustrations drive home the message of identity. When the presentation ends, participants make a vow of commitment to life. Other nonprofit organizations work to educate the public of various tools, recognizing warning signs, and to reduce suicide rates in Indigenous youth in Alaska. That was Hannah Bissett, and I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. A volcano recently erupted in Tonga in the southern Pacific Ocean. It's the largest volcanic eruption in modern history. Among other things, NASA researchers say the underwater explosion sent more than 38 billion gallons of water into the atmosphere. There are hundreds of active volcanoes across the globe. There are many more dormant or extinct volcanoes that are reminders of the Earth's fiery past. In many cases, our indigenous ancestors were the only witnesses to the power of early volcanic activity. The rumblings, earthquakes, smoke, and steam became part of indigenous stories and culture. In this hour, we'll talk about the cultural and environmental power of volcanoes. We invite you to join us, too. How do volcanoes in your indigenous homeland fit into culture and your stories? Share your comments and insights at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us first from Los Angeles, California, is Robert Goldman. He's a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellow. He's Native Hawaiian. Robert, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. And uh, by the way, uh, you can call me Robbie. Robbie, you got it. Robbie, Native Hawaiians, uh, you folks live in direct proximity to volcanoes. Please remind us of that relationship and how your people view their powerful forces. Um, so volcanoes are an inherent part of Hawaiian culture and oral tradition, uh, given that the Hawaiian islands themselves um, were built uh, from volcanic activity over millions of years. Uh, the island chain uh, actually represents the progression of uh magma erupting uh, on the ocean floor and building up to the surface of the ocean over time. And the smallest of the islands uh, to the uh, northwest, all the way down to the big island um, at the southeast, represents a gradual um, 
younging or uh, decreasing age of those volcanoes. And the Big Island uh, currently contains uh, the active volcanoes, uh, most notably Kilauea Volcano, which is the home of the goddess Pele, uh, the goddess of fire, who uh, in Hawaiian uh, tradition uh, traveled across the Pacific Ocean uh, before uh, finding Kilauea and making it her home. And so uh, the volcanoes on the Big Island uh, are really important uh, to um, us Native Hawaiians because um, of their their prominence uh, and their uh, historical and ancestral significance. Kilauea. Um, and then what are some other very culturally significant volcanoes there in Hawaii? Um, so another uh, significant volcano is Mauna Kea. Um, this is a volcano that uh, represents a connection to the heaven. Um, it's also the location of uh, a number of astronomical observatories, and it has been um, in the news uh, these last uh, few years, last uh, decade or so, just because of the, the tension between uh, Native Hawaiian communities and um, uh, the various entities involved in the observatories because of um, conflicts arising over uh, the sovereignty of those lands, uh, the having a respect for the sacredness of uh, the Mauna Kea Summit. And um, there's been a uh, committee that's recently been established uh, through the government of Hawaii that will include several Native Hawaiians to discuss uh, ways of moving forward with uh, the proposed 30-meter telescope and uh, the other observatories up there. Um, but Mauna Kea and Kilauea are among the two um, most prominent volcanoes. Uh, Mauna Loa is another volcano. It's actually the largest volcano on Earth. It makes up uh, over half of the island's volume, and it rises um, over eight kilometers from the ocean floor uh, to uh, reach about four kilometers um, above the um, surface of the ocean. So um, that's a very prominent feature and um, a volcano that has not had eruptions within the last few decades, but that has been historically active over the last few centuries. And Robbie, what is the role of volcanoes in Native Hawaiian culture? I'm thinking stories, songs, other aspects of, of the indigenous lifestyle. Um, so volcanoes, uh, there are a number of uh, Hawaiian uh, stories or chants uh, surrounding them. Uh, one of the most famous actually is the story of Pele and her younger sister, Hiiaka. Uh, it's a, a, a sort of an unrequited love story. Uh, Pele uh, ends up forming um, a crush on this man named Lohiao and uh, sends her sister Hiiaka to travel across the Hawaiian Islands uh, in search of him uh, to uh, help Pele uh, propose to him. Um, and the condition of this trip is that Hiyaka does not, you know, uh, betray Pele, cheat uh, on Pele, essentially. Uh, and uh, Pele actually uh, threatens to um, overflow this um, field that's sacred to Hiyaka if she doesn't return within 40 days. And uh, due to a number of obstacles that he, Hiyaka faces, um, she is not able to uh, complete her journey, even though she finds Lohiao. Uh, she's not able to complete the journey within 40 days. So then Kilauea, or, or Pelea, um, gets impatient and unfortunately 
uh, destroys uh, the Ohia forest that uh, Hiaka uh, so cherished. And in retaliation, Hiaka then um, uh, sought to um, make Loyao uh, her own uh, lover, which um, caused Pele to then try to bury Loyao within the summit of Kilauea Volcano. Um, and a series of events unfolds, which if I recall correctly, does lead to Loyao ultimately being rescued. Uh, but in the process, there was um, the formation of a crater within the summit of Kilauea um, that temporarily filled with water, but then erupted with lava again. And these stories actually tell the geologic story of uh, Kilauea volcanoes eruptive ha- activity and cycles. Uh, so, so these... I'm sorry, Robert. So these stories, it sounds like they parallel actual geological activities in, in the history of the islands. Yeah, that's right. And they've actually helped a number of volcanologists uh, understand those histories in more detail in ways that we wouldn't otherwise understand since um, activity that occurred um, a few hundred years before the observatory itself was founded are often buried by um, younger lava flows. So having those uh, oral traditions from Native Hawaiians who have been on the land for much longer, uh, it uh, expands our own knowledge of uh, the island's volcanic history. Now, how were the daily lives of ancient Hawaiians impacted? I'm thinking of like like the types of homes they lived in, the foods they were eating. Were those all impacted by some of this volcanic activity? Yeah, so um, there is definitely um, regular volcanic activity. Um, Lava flows tend to be the most prominent hazard that affects the land just because um, of the volume of land that they cover and uh, the fact that you can have uh, buildings or crops over those active lava flows. Um, but one thing that the Native Hawaiians have done um, is over the centuries is that they've learned to live with uh, the volcanoes and to have a sustainable um lifestyle and sustainable system for agriculture, aquaculture, standing um, the volcanoes in terms of living, breathing. And so uh, with Pele in particular, um, she's often seen as, you know, having this cycle where ever so often she needs to uh, move away from her home and just explore a little bit of the island or uh, take a swim in the ocean or uh, maybe go. Um, her the paths that she takes through the lava flows that are produced from each eruption are viewed as something to be respected and to really give Pele her space and to also have gratitude to the new land and the new life that she provides because of that, since uh, volcanic rock does end up producing really fertile soil. Um, so it's really viewed, the volcanoes are really viewed as being the life force of uh, the Hawaiian Islands. And this is something that uh, during the largest eruption in the last couple hundred years, back in 2018, um, there are Native Hawaiians who um, expressed that same you know, respect for Pele taking the path that she needed to take, and that whatever buildings or homes were in, ultimately, it was just a matter of just the cycle of life on the islands, and that there will be new beginnings that come from that. So, Robbie, I, I think so often people think of volcanoes as having so much destructive power. But what you're telling us today and what your ancestors understood very clearly is that 
there is tremendous constructive power in volcanoes as well. Absolutely. Fascinating. Just fascinating. And I've always been very intrigued by the islands of Hawaii and people that live there today and and, and being, because it's not even you're in close proximity. I mean, you're literally living on volcanoes, right? And is there... Yeah, all the islands are active or were previously active volcanoes. Previously active. And is there, uh, I mean, just going about day-to-day living on, on the Hawaiian islands, is there? Is it always in the back of your mind that, you know, that, that there could be an eruption or there could be some sort of significant uh, volcanic activity that could really disrupt the, the life as you know it? Yeah, I certainly think that's true uh, for the big island. Um, just speaking for myself for a moment, I didn't actually grow up on the Hawaiian islands. Uh, and my family on my mom's side that does live there, they live in Oahu, which is uh, a few islands up the chain. Uh, No longer any active volcanoes there, but um, that was one of the locations that felt the large uh, magnitude 6.3, 6.4 earthquake that marked the beginning of the eruption I alluded to earlier that began in 2018. Um, But I guess uh, just, just from my knowledge of talking with uh, both uh, Hawaiian residents and with uh, volcano scientists at the USGS Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, um, it's definitely something that is on people's minds because these volcanoes, in particular Kilauea and Mauna Loa, um, are the most active volcanoes on the island. And because uh, okay. everyone on the island is living on their okay. slopes, it's definitely something that's on people's minds. Got it. We're speaking with Robbie Goldman. We're learning more about volcanoes. We'll be back right after this break. The federal government just took a big chunk of debt off the table for college students who took out loans to pay for their education. The move was met with a predictable wave of praise and criticism. For many Native students, it's a relief that opens the door to opportunities. We'll explore what those are and review the role loans play in higher education on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a -a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on volcanoes today. What connections do you have with volcanoes in your native homeland? Are they part of your origin stories? Do you ever worry about a giant volcanic eruption similar to Mount St. Helens that occurred back in 1980? Join our discussion by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. You can also comment on our social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Native America Calling. We're also on Twitter at one 800 native We're speaking now with Robbie Goldman, and he's a PhD candidate at the University of Illinois. And Robbie, it's, I was really fascinated by what you were telling us before the break, how there's so much constructive power in volcanoes. And is it safe to say that uh, the vol- Hawaii and, and everything we think of Hawaii um, wouldn't exist if it weren't for these volcanoes. 
Yeah, I mean, it's literally the case where without these volcanoes, there would just be ocean. There wouldn't be these Hawaiian islands. So every part of the land of the Hawaiian islands is volcanic land. And what got you interested in studying volcanoes, Robbie? Well, certainly my uh, native Hawaiian um, heritage uh, was one of the main factors. Um, I also credit just having a really good uh, earth science education through uh, my years of primary and secondary schooling. Um, I was very lucky in high school to actually have a geology class I was taught uh, for upper-level students, um, and that got me really interested in pursuing geology in general uh, during my undergraduate years at Pomona College in Claremont, California. And um, I ended up conducting my undergraduate thesis uh, with uh, a scientist, Eric Grofies, who uh, studies both uh, Earth and um, extraterrestrial volcanoes, so volcanoes on other planets. And that just inspired me to continue uh, studying volcanoes as a PhD student. Now, do you find crossovers between traditional scientific researchers and indigenous knowledge when it comes to the study of volcanoes? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, there are a number of scientists at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory uh, who are Native Hawaiian. Uh, so uh, Jim Kawagikawa, who is also a Pomona alum, and Frank Truesdell uh, are two um, Hawaiian volcanologists there. Um, I also know of volcano scientists in New Zealand. Uh, the New Zealand Maori are closely related to Native Hawaiians. I actually uh, had the privilege to study in New Zealand for a year um, as part of my Fulbright Fellowship, and I got to uh, meet with um, several Maori communities uh, on different volcanic uh, locations to just learn about um, their uh, community concerns, ways of uh, incorporating uh, their oral traditions into um, the sort of uh, established or Western uh, geologic studies. And um, in recent years, I've been seeing a lot more emphasis on having that sort of cross-cultural uh, ways of knowing about how volcanoes operate on a landscape in different parts of the world. And what are these indigenous volcanologists learning about the future of volcanoes? Um, well, I think one thing we're learning is that we're better able to um, monitor volcanoes and uh, communicate uh, potential hazards to communities living on the volcanoes. Um, I'd say that uh, in terms of the activity of volcanoes, uh, it's been pretty consistent as far as we know over the past several million years, um, but we have a lot more uh, instruments, eyes on the ground to report eruptions as they happen. So um, everything from the Tonga eruption uh, that recently occurred to um, a series of earthquakes that have been uh, detected um, near American Samoa, there's definitely a lot of attention being paid to volcanic activity around the world. Um, but that doesn't indicate that there's more of it than there was before. It just means that we have um, better ability to keep track of um, what they're doing. And some of these laboratories, uh, the telescopes you mentioned earlier, other types of equipment that is used to monitor these volcanoes in Hawaii, how involved are our Native Hawaiians such as yourself and other indigenous volcanologists in, in maintaining that equipment in those sites and, and um, having input? and how those facilities are managed? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, well, I don't know all the details personally. Um, I do know that um, 
there are a number of uh, Native Hawaiian staff, um, in addition to the scientists I mentioned, who are involved with um, maintaining uh, equipment such as um, GPS uh, sensors, um, other equipment that uh, monitors different aspects of volcanic activity. Um, when I visited the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory at the start of 2020, um, I actually um, got to sit in on a, a conversation that was led by a visiting uh, researcher about um, ways of uh, doing research on uh, indigenous lands and what it means to obtain consent and when consent is not given, what, you know, how to be respectful of that. And it, it was, it was a really useful conversation because I got to hear different perspectives from uh, native Hawaiians within the uh, Hawaiian volcano observatory community. And just the fact that there really isn't one single perspective because every individual has a unique experience and point of view, even within that shared uh, native Hawaiian community. Folks, if you want to get in on this conversation, we are learning all about volcanoes. We're learning about volcanoes in the islands of Hawaii. And we're also going to talk about volcanoes in other parts of North America. So give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Robbie, thank you so much for all that information. And again, so much good information regarding the history of volcanoes and, and how the Native Hawaiian people have interacted with them for millennia. Joining us now from Vancouver, Washington, is Dr. John Major. He's the scientist in charge of the U.S. Geological Survey Cascades Volcano Observatory. John, welcome to the show. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. John, earlier we heard Robbie talk about the constructive powers of volcano and, and, and so many um, aspects of life that they make possible there on the Hawaiian Islands. How significant are volcanoes in the geological history of the North American continent at large? Oh, they're very important, and particularly here uh, where we're based in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Uh, we have a chain of volcanoes here called the Cascades Volcanoes, and they have a long history of eruption, a uh, long history of fairly frequent eruptions. Um, on average here in the Cascades, the volcanoes erupt maybe a couple times per century, which you know, compared to, to what Robbie and, and our colleagues at the Hawaii Volcano Observatory study is, isn't very frequent. You know, they, they have eruptions uh, almost continuously, or at least quite, quite frequently. Here in the Cascades are much less frequent, but nevertheless, um, they have a long history and there's a long history of indigenous oral traditions that uh, go back and tell us about the eruptions at, at various volcanoes in the Cascades. So it's, it's, it's a pretty important part here. Uh, the entire American Southwest, down where you are, you know, kind of the New Mexico, Arizona area, has a long history of volcanism down there. So, so volcanism in the Western continental U.S. is, is extremely uh, important. In addition to the Cascades, what volcanoes are scientists keeping a, a, an especially close eye on in North America? Yeah, well, at the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, we actually have five volcano observatories. Uh, the, the Hawaii Flying Volcano Observatory that, that Robbie spoke about. Uh, we have our Cascades Volcano Observatory here in the Pacific Northwest. But we have our, our California Volcano Observatory. Uh, we have our Alaska Volcano Observatory that's responsible for uh, keeping tabs on everything going on in the Alaska and the Aleutians. And we have the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory, which is responsible for activity in Yellowstone and principally the, the American Southwest. So 
you know, as you mentioned at the opening, there's there's like you know something like 160 to 170 uh, volcanoes with you know within the U.S. and its territories, and the USGS Volcano Hazard Program, you know, our five volcano observatories are responsible for for keeping tabs on the activity of all those. And John, scientists, volcanologists who work on volcanoes, they they measure seismic activity to determine what could possibly happen an eruption or a lava flow. Is that an exact science? I mean, can they really pinpoint when some significant activity is going to occur? Um, I won't call it an exact science, uh, but the the depending on uh, how much instrumentation we have on the landscape at a particular volcano, the nature of that instrumentation, uh, we are poised to be able to detect the earliest possible signs of unrest. And then depending on how that unrest unfolds, uh, sometimes it unfolds in a very predictable, uh, very obvious pattern that, that kind of leads almost linearly to an eruption. And, you know, we're able to to look at that and make that call, uh, alert the authorities so that uh, people can be evacuated out of harm's way. Uh, but every volcano is unique. Uh, sometimes a volcano might look every, it, it might show all the signals of, of leading to an eruption and then it quiets down. And um, and another time, the volcano may ramp up, look like it's headed to an eruption, and then it kind of plateaus, and it goes along on a kind of a high level of unrest at a plateau for a while, and then it can either then escalate to eruption or, or quiet back down. So it's, it's, it's definitely not an exact science, uh, but we do our best to try to interpret the signals using our understanding of past behavior of that particular volcano and seeking analogs worldwide uh, for a the behavior of a particular volcano. What was the last major eruption in North America? Was it Mount St. Helens? The last major eruption in, in North America, yeah, last big one would be Mount St. Helens in 1980. Um, Mount St. Helens actually was, was active again in 2004 through 2008. Uh, wasn't anywhere near uh, the activity level that, that happened in 1980. Um, but, uh, you know, Hawaii uh, in 2018, as Robbie talked about, that was a that was a pretty major eruption. Uh, the, the lava flow of fusion down in the lower East Rift Zone and the the collapsing of the caldera up at the summit of the volcano. Uh, but but in the continental U.S., for for sure, Mount St. Helens was the, the last really substantial eruption that we had. I want to share a comment we just got on our Facebook page from uh, a person named Troy. And he says, I was seven at the time of the Mount St. Helens eruption and was outside playing basketball with my older brother, Sean. <laughs> Not me, his older brother, I guess. And I thought it was cool. It was snowing. Then my mom came out telling us to get inside. Then I remember the day turned to night, and it seemed like it was dark for days. Not sure how long it was dark. I also have asthma, and it was tough after that, I remember, Mount St. Helens. That's Troy. He was commenting on our Facebook page. John, what do you remember about that eruption back in 1980? Uh, actually, I was a, a newly minted uh, graduate of a geology program. Uh, I did my undergraduate uh, study at the University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio, and I had just graduated with my geology degree, and about a month later, Mount St. Helens erupted. Um, you know, as, as a freshly minted geology graduate, I was, you know, kind of fascinated by what I could read in the news, but that was the extent of, of, of my knowledge of it, you know, back in 1980, we didn't have the internet and we didn't have social media. So the only, the only real information you could get, you know, halfway across the continent was what you read in the newspapers. Um, by rather fortuitous circumstance, uh, I had planned to go to Penn State for, 
to, to pursue a graduate degree. And it turned out that the person who was going to be my principal professor at Penn State was very heavily involved in Mount St. Helens. And so as a result of that, um, he got me uh, involved in a project at Mount St. Helens. And I've been out here since 1981 now, almost, you know, 40, 41 years ago. Um, it, I, I find it pretty fascinating that, uh, you know, to, to still be working in this field. Um, I'll have to admit that as a geology student, I wasn't uh, looking or pining to be a, a volcanologist. Uh, I, I had an interest in, in, in other fields in, in geology and uh, just by, you know, kind of fortuitous circumstance ended up working at Mount St. Helens and that guy kind of put me on my career trajectory. Well, John, I'm going to have to put you on the spot here because I know <laughs> myself and a lot of our listeners are really wondering what what is the likelihood or, or I'm, and I know it's not an exact science, but is there the possibility of, of another massive eruption in North America in the coming years? You know, we, we can't rule it out for sure. Um, we'll, let, we'll go back to Mount St. Helens. I mean, Mount St. Helens was known to be the most active volcano in the Cascades. Um, it had a, a very long history of, of very frequent eruptions. And in fact, in the late 1970s, the USGS scientists who've been studying Mount St. Helens, you know, recently forecast that Mount St. Helens would erupt again and potentially by the end of the 20th century. And, you know, two years later, Mount St. Helens reawakened. So we never know when one of our volcanoes in the Cascades is going to reawaken. As, as I mentioned, you know, on average, we get about two eruptions per century. But if you look over, say, the past four or 5,000 years, every one of the volcanoes in the Cascades has erupted uh, in some manner, and some of them multiple times. And so, you know, I'll, I'll pick on Mount Rainier up near the Seattle area. You know, Mount Rainier has, has erupted multiple times. Its last major eruption was maybe about 1,000 years ago. Now, that doesn't mean that it's poised to erupt tomorrow or, or it's poised to erupt a thousand years from now. And we, we, we can't really make those kinds of forecasts, but based on the, based on the past histories of these volcanoes, we know that they erupt fairly frequently on, on geological time scale, kind of over generational time scales. So we can't rule out the possibility of, of, of something like that happening again, uh, a Mount St. Helens type eruption happening somewhere in the Cascades, possibly in my lifetime, I, I would, if I had to guess, I'd say probably not likely in my lifetime, but um, we certainly can't rule that out. John, there's talk of this um, super volcano that lies below Yellowstone National Park and that it's long overdue for eruption. Is is that a potential threat as well? Now, the, the biggest threat, is, you know, there, there's always a lot of hype about Yellowstone, you know, because Yellowstone has had some really large eruptions over the past couple million years. But... Um, there's no indication right now that Yellowstone is building or poised to, to erupt in that manner. Um, but what's, what's potentially more likely to happen at Yellowstone are, are what we call these uh, hydrothermal explosions. Uh, you know, Yellowstone has a lot of, you know, there's a lot of hot water circulating around Yellowstone. And, and over the past few thousands of years, smaller kind of hot water steam eruptions have occurred at Yellowstone. So that's, that's what's more likely to occur than some giant super eruption that's going to devastate half the continent. So there's, there's really no indication that Yellowstone's poised to do anything like that. Um, but our brethren at the, at the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory, they're, they're more concerned about these 
kind of these hot water explosions, but we call these hydrothermal explosions. And they're, they're trying to figure out the best ways to try to monitor for something like that happening. Well, folks, if you've got a question, if you've got a comment, if you have some experience uh, having been near a volcano or near a lava flow, give us a call. We'd love to hear your story. 1-800-996-2848. Our guests today, Robbie Goldman and John Major, and they're sharing their expertise with regard to volcanoes. And we're also learning about the indigenous connection to volcanoes and that intersection between science and indigenous culture and knowledge and how that's being used to advance the study of volcanoes or volcanology as it's referred to. So folks, what are you waiting for? Our phone lines are open. Our producers are standing by 1-800-996-2848. Stay with us. For almost 50 years, the Indian Loan Guarantee and Insurance Program has been helping lenders give loans to Indian country businesses for development and construction projects. Do you have a business idea to improve your tribal economy? Need startup costs, working capital, new equipment, or refinancing? The time is right for Indian country investments. Information at bia.gov dci, which supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still time to get in on our discussion about volcanoes. Earlier, we mentioned the volcanic eruption of Mount St. Helens in May of 1980. If you're from that area, what do you remember from that event? How are the volcanoes in your Native community viewed through a cultural lens? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking right now with Dr. John Major. And John, we've talked earlier, and Robbie mentioned this, on how important it is to understand that volcanoes are not only destructive forces, but also constructive forces and um, have a lot to do with the history of North America and the Hawaiian Islands as well. And But let's go ahead and click ahead, and, and I'd like to ask you, what are the benefits of volcanoes, and, and, and what do they provide to to humans and wildlife today living in the 21st century? Yeah, sure. Uh, probably the, probably the, the biggest benefit to volcanism is the ability, uh, one of the volcanic processes is, is uh, the deposition of what we call volcanic ash. And this is um, the, the material that erupts up into the atmosphere. Everybody's probably seen these you know, photographs of these beautiful eruption columns rising from a volcano. And all that volcanic ash gets carried downwind and deposited across the landscape. And as a result of all that, that deposition of that material, it ultimately makes the landscape incredibly fertile. So here in the Pacific Northwest, um, that, that the winds blow from the west to the east, they've carried all that volcanic ash uh, from the Cascades volcanoes into eastern Washington, eastern Oregon. And that part of the, that part of the Pacific Northwest is just very fertile ground for agriculture. So that, that's probably one of the biggest benefits uh, to volcanism. Uh, on the landscape is just to 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 kind of kind of just re-energize and recharge the landscape and improve the fertility and just make it uh, an incredibly lush place to to be able to grow agriculture. Um, Re- so that, that's, that's that's perhaps the yeah just kind of recharging the landscape. Okay, oh, that's really interesting, John. We've actually got a caller. Um, they're not on the line, but they did ask a question that my producers have just sent over to me. 
Rebecca in Santa Fe wants to know if fracking exacerbates the threat from volcanoes, especially in Yellowstone. What's your thought on that, John? Yeah, this is, uh, I'm wondering if this is prompted by a program that just aired on the Sci-Fi channel uh, a few days ago. Um, You know, there, there are these calls for, well, you know, if Yellowstone's leading to a big eruption, can we drill and relieve the pressure and, you know, by fracking, cost fracking and relieve the pressure? That's, you know, that's, that's just, you know, basically mythology, um, that there's no benefit to trying to manipulate or control uh, any kind of a volcanic eruption using that kind of a, a technology. That's just, that's, it's, it was on the sci-fi channel and I'll, I'll let the <laughs> okay. channel speak. Yeah. The, the channel title can speak for itself. Okay. Um, I'm interested though, are, are volcanoes impacted by climate change? Uh, yes, they, they are. Um, in the really broad scale, uh, the last time we had big continental glaciation, when we had the big glaciers covered the landscape here in the Northwest and, and across the Northern Hemisphere, um, as those glaciers retreated, uh, they relieved the, the, the pressure and the load on the landscape, and that allowed uh, volcanism to increase a bit. Um, you know, these are these are probably not relations that we would see on our life scale because there's a long time lag between kind of the unloading of the landscape from glaciation and then, you know, the, the ability of the, of the mantle to, to generate the magmas to kind of increase the, the frequency of magmatism. Uh, but on, kind of on a more local scale right now, uh, here in the Cascades, as we see the climate is warming and the glaciers retreating, it's exposing more loose sediment on the landscape of the volcanoes. And, um, during the winter time, when our uh, when we get our heavy rains and our precipitation, areas that formerly were usually covered, you know, would get snow or are now getting more rain. That rain is causing the, these loose sediments to mobilize more frequently, and we're getting we call them uh, debris flows or mud flows that are sweeping off the volcanoes. These are these are not things that travel you know tens and tens of miles downstream. But for those people who might be recreating or working along river channels uh, kind of close to the volcanoes, it's becoming a little bit more of a seasonal hazard now uh, as we have more loose sediment exposed and it's getting uh, mobilized easier. Is there a connection between earthquakes and volcanoes? Uh, In in a broad sense, sure. Uh, Around the, the, the... the Pacific Ocean, we have what we call the Ring of Fire. I think you mentioned that earlier in, in your introduction. And this is where the, the Ring of Fire is caused, where the, the oceanic plate, won't get too technical here, but the, 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 the big oceanic plate is, is diving beneath the continental plate, uh, say along uh, the, the, north, the west coast of North America and west coast of South America. And so as that oceanic plate we call that subduction as it subducts beneath the continental plate. Um, that's where you get a lot of earthquakes triggered. Um, here in the Pacific Northwest, we worry about what we call the Cascadia earthquake, big, big subduction zone earthquake across the, the Washington, Oregon uh, uh, coast. Um, so the subduction triggers earthquakes. And as the oceanic plate subducts or dives even deeper beneath the continental plate, it begins to to melt a little bit, and it's that melting that then triggers the volcanism that we see along the, the Cascade Range uh, here in the Northwest, and also like the, the, the volcanoes of the Andes, uh, the volcanoes of Japan, et cetera. So all around the Spring of Fire, both these large, the, the large earthquakes and the volcanoes are related to the subduction of the oceanic plate beneath the continental plate. 
John, going back to the dangers associated with volcanoes, is there an emergency system connected to monitoring all these volcanoes? Yeah, so so at the USGS, um, and here at the Cascades Volcano Observatory, you, you can kind of think of our mission as a three-legged stool. Uh, one is to, uh, we do our research. We try to understand the frequency of eruptions of these volcanoes. We try to understand what types of eruptions they've had in the past. Uh, and that helps inform us for when that volcano becomes active again, what we might anticipate. Uh, the second leg of our stool is our monitoring program. So we have instrumentation on the landscape to try to detect volcanic earthquakes that are triggered by the movement of magma. Uh, as, as magma moves to the ground, it's got to break rock. Breaking that rock is going to trigger earthquakes. And so we look at the frequency of the earthquakes, the size of the earthquakes, and we look to see if the, if the depth of those earthquakes is changing with time. As magma gets closer and closer to the surface, those earthquakes are going to get shallower and shallower. Um, think of a water balloon. As, as, you, as you pump water into a balloon, that balloon is going to inflate. Well, the same thing happens on the landscape. As magma works its way to the surface, the, the ground surface actually inflates or rises up a little bit, and we can use GPS technologies to monitor that. And as, as magmas get closer to the surface, they also release gases that are trapped within the magma. And so we're able to monitor gases. So by looking at those, those, those are our three workhorses for monitoring the activity of the volcano. And the sooner we can begin to detect any kind of unrest, the sooner we can then inform the, the local authorities and they can then inform the public. Uh, and if an evacuation is necessary, you know, the, the idea is to you know, provide the earliest possible warning of volcanic activity so that the public and the, the authorities can take uh, the appropriate response. And then the third leg of our stool is, is really all our, our public outreach and communication. We have very strong programs. Um, educating the public, interacting with the public, interacting with the, the local governmental authorities. And, and, you know, we also reach out to the indigenous tribes and, and, and try to involve them, uh, try to keep them informed, you know, what, 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 could, uh, what could an eruption do to, you know, to your tribal lands? What are the kinds of things that you might anticipate if Volcano X were to, to become active and erupt in the future? So, so we have a very active engagement with the, with the public. Let's go back to Robbie. And Robbie, you touched on this earlier, how, um, Native Hawaiian uh, knowledge seekers and scientists have are, are connected to this emergency communication system. And can you talk a little bit more about how that system works there there on the islands? Yeah, and actually, um, this is something that's um, a central part of my uh, PhD dissertation, uh, understanding uh, the communication uh, between U.S. Geological Survey and communities on Hawaii, as well as uh, communities uh, online such as through social media. Uh, so uh, when I talked to the residents on the island of Hawaii during my visit um, a little over two and a half years ago, um, I learned that uh, there's a lot of benefit to the outreach that USGS does uh, and that they've been doing over the past uh, decade or so. Uh, these include in-person meetings uh, at different community centers at different regions of the island uh, to um, just keep people up to date on uh, how the various volcanoes are behaving, how the USGS is monitoring those volcanoes, as John described earlier, um, answering any questions that residents have um, about actions to take, um, and also providing information uh, through their uh, Facebook account, which and uh, other social media uh, platforms through the uh, USGS Volcanoes handle. 
And this became a very important part of the 2018 response effort, uh, since uh, residents in Hawaii, as well as uh, people throughout the world, uh, could ask their questions um, or verify whether a piece of information was true or whether it was misinformation by uh, asking the volcanologists uh, who are in charge of the page. And so uh, something that I've learned just by studying uh, interactions between various groups of people, uh, including uh, Hawaiians, is that um, the having that active line of communication is really fundamental to establishing and maintaining trust uh, between uh, volcano scientists and the communities they serve. And Robbie, where is the best place for our listeners to go to learn more about volcanoes from an indigenous perspective? That's an excellent question. Um, I don't know of any one particular source, but I do know that there are a number of um, volcano scientists um, online through social media who uh, have um, accounts that um, actively post information about um, indigenous perspectives. Um, I know that um, one of the uh, Geology Societies, the American Geophysical Union, they have a popular science publication called EOS, spelled E-O-S, and they often post uh, short articles uh, providing uh, indigenous perspectives on various aspects of geology. And being an a indigenous uh, earth scientist and uh, ways of improving uh, the inclusivity um, of the scientific enterprise. Uh, so. I guess I would recommend EOS as a good starting point and also just uh, reaching out to indigenous scientists like myself. Thanks for those resources, Robbie. We've got another caller question. Ray in Shiprock wants to know if there are any outside forces, a meteor or maybe a man-made explosion that could potentially trigger a volcanic eruption. John, you want to field this one? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think, you know, I mean, if we were to be unfortunate enough to have a meteor impact, um, that could certainly uh, <laughs> disturb the equilibrium of, of, of the surface and, and the landscape and, and potentially lead to eruptions, you know, depending on where it, where it happened to hit. Um, the other one was what sort of large explosions, I believe. Um, not exactly sure what the caller was trying to get at with that particular one. Um, more likely than not, uh, kind of man-made activity is not not going to trigger it, but but a, a meteor impact. Uh, I think uh, we'd have a lot we'd have a lot of other things to worry about if a meteor impacted the the, the Earth's surface than, than just volcanic eruptions. But the, it could certainly uh, probably trigger eruptive activity. Okay. Um, yeah, I think maybe they were referring to like a nuclear explosion or something like that. But I would imagine again that would probably be the least of our worries if there were a detonation of that scale. To, to go yeah. off here in, in contemporary world, John. When you when you hear about Robbie's work and other indigenous volcanologists, um, how are you able to to incorporate some of these elements and some of these um, traditional knowledge sources into your contemporary work, uh, studying volcanoes and, and doing all of this research? Sure, um, I, I I think maybe we can think of the the volcanoes as having sort of two languages. Um, one I'll call the ancestral language, and that is the sort of the, the geologic record in the field that, that you know, our, our volcanologists go out and we study the deposits. We look at the, the products of past eruptions. And, and to a certain extent, I mean, it's a language, and we have to learn how to interpret and understand that language. Um, our, the, the other language I will call the modern language, and that's, that's all the 
kind of contemporary activity at a volcano. Um, here in the Cascades, while these look like they're very stately monolithic uh, features on the landscape, these are these volcanoes are constantly chattering and constantly talking, and there's always some kind of background earthquake earthquake activity going on. And so understanding that language is important to us because that can then help us try to interpret what's coming next. Um, the indigenous uh, traditions, I think, really help us try to understand that ancestral language, the record of the eruptions. There are, there are many indigenous uh, oral traditions about behavior at, at, at the volcanoes in the Cascades. And a lot of those, at, you know, very similar to the, the traditions that Robbie talked about with the Pele and Kilauea, and understanding those traditions and then trying to take those indigenous traditions and those indigenous stories and look at the, look at the, the record of, of the behavior of the volcano, um, that's where it really helps us out. It really helps us with kind of understanding that ancestral language of the volcano and interpreting what, what, the, what that language is. Now, we are going to have to wrap up the show in, in about another minute, but Robbie, I want to give you the last word, and I think the overarching theme in today's show is this connection with our indigenous knowledge and, and the modern science behind volcanoes, and what can we do as Native people to be more mindful and aware of volcanoes and, and the history and the role that they play in our lives as Indigenous people? Well, I think that... Um... Maybe for those of us who um, aren't as immediately tied to our ancestral lands, uh, such as uh, scientists like myself, uh, just learning more about um, our cultural history and uh, the significance that volcanoes play in that history. Um, I think that um, my uh, fellow Hawaiians who are um, in Hawaii probably have a closer understanding of that than I do, but um, I think just being mindful, learning about uh, the stories that have been passed down through generations, um, understanding the language of the volcanoes, as uh, John alluded to, uh, and just uh, communicating, sharing stories, learning from each other, and uh, passing that knowledge on to um, others who are outside those communities so that um, they can have a greater appreciation of that knowledge as well. Well, we're going to have to go ahead and wrap up the show. I want to thank our guests for a fascinating discussion on the world of volcanoes, both scientifically and culturally. Join us here on Native America Calling again tomorrow for a discussion about the federal government's new student loan debt forgiveness program. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. If you or someone you know is feeling sad, hopeless, or experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis, Call, text, or chat 988. 988 is a new three-digit dialing code for 24-7 emotional, mental, or substance misuse support. 988 connects you to free confidential support. You are not alone in a crisis. Just call, text, or chat 988. For more information, visit 988.nm.org.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.